Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in, oh my God, I don't remember where we are, North Dakota? Yes, North Dakota, the Rough Rider State. Great. If you can't tell by my voice, I am still currently sick, which is why we didn't release an episode the other week. But I'm here for y'all now, and we're going to do this thing. We're going to do it, guys. It's going to happen. So yeah, we're in North Dakota. I think the Rough Rider State is my favorite nickname of any state so far. The Rough Rider State, I do kind of like that too. Yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty cool. So some fun facts for you about... North Dakota, Eden. Uh, It's one of the least visited states in the U.S. Really? Okay. Yeah. Tourism is not really its thing, apparently. Uh, No idea why. Yeah, I don't know either. Got nothing to back that up with. Interestingly, it's either the 39th or the 40th state. No one is actually sure which one it is. (laughs) So someone needed to be keeping better records and they didn't. Exactly. And you can say the same thing about South Dakota, too, because both of the Dakotas joined as the Dakota Territory, and then eventually they were split into two separate states, North and South Dakota. And uh, apparently, Benjamin Harrison, who was the president at the time, purposefully made it impossible to tell which state came into the union first, because he shuffled up the paperwork and signed them without looking at it. So not even he would know. What an asshole. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> worst president ever well it was his solution to, to, to kind of settle and by not settling um, a bunch of different political squabbles about how they're going to enter the the union so yeah and i mean i can totally see it happening where they entered together because was it colorado a few years back that was like yeah we're gonna split up and be like north and south colorado now because of pot legalization or something yeah they tried they tried let's see other fun facts about North Dakota. I think probably if I ask people what the only city they know in North Dakota, they're going to say Fargo. Fargo, yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the Coen Brothers film, Fargo. Wait, is Bismarck North Dakota or is that South Dakota? I believe Bismarck is North Dakota. Because that's like the the capital capital. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So Bismarck. Yeah, I know that one. Fargo is the largest city in North Dakota. Um, and the funny thing is, is like you always think about Fargo and you think about that, the accents in Fargo, but I guess all of that is actually Minnesota for the most part. It was shot in and around Minneapolis. Yeah. But I mean, they still, North and South Dakota still do have that accent though, because, um, my ex-husband had a relative that was from South Dakota and she came over to visit and there was this poor dog that no one really got to know very well because he was always just very sad, apparently. So they didn't really bond with him very well, but she loved him. And he was this old dog. And she said to him, oh, you know, you get a 50% discount for being a senior citizen and you get a 50% discount for being so darn cute. And that's exactly <laughs> how she sounded. That's amazing. And then we're all kind of like, does that mean he pays nothing or is it like the 50% and then the other 50%? I, 50% I don't know. 50% so he pays a quarter. Of what and what was he paying for, for to begin with? Um, I don't know. Maybe doggy treats? Paying for kibble. Paying for pets. One I of guess those. so. Only two things that matter to a dog. Let's see. Other fun stuff about North Dakota. Almost 90% of the state is farmland or ranches. So that's a lot of farmland. I could see that. That makes sense to me. And what you have on a lot of that farmland is apparently beans. A lot of the beans you have probably at home in your cabinet come from North Dakota. It's the largest supplier of dry beans, honey, wheat, flaxseed, and canola in the nation. Must be Brack's favorite state. (laughs) Here's something you might dig, Eden. Did you know that North Dakota hosts... North America's largest Scandinavian festival. Um, I did not, but it makes sense for the area. Yeah, right. It does. I feel like a lot of folks who who settled in the Dakotas and and Minnesota are of Scandinavian descent. In Minot, North Dakota, yep. Minot, Minot, there is a annual celebration called Norsk Hustfest, which celebrates Nordic heritage. Alrighty. And I guess tens of thousands of people show up for this this event. Yeah, and they made a movie about it, and it's called Midsummer. 
Ah, uh, love that movie. People are just dying to go there. <laughs> uh, no spoilers. Apparently, North Dakota also used to have sea monsters. Okay. And when I say used to, I mean 80 million years ago. Uh, as you know, the, the North Dakota and South Dakota are uh, very different geologically today than they were, you know, 80 million years ago during the age of the dinosaurs. And they have discovered fossilized vertebrae that look like sea creatures that are bigger than any previously identified sea monster. It looks like it was a swim, one of the largest, almost complete skeletons of a prehistoric swimming reptile called the Mosasaur. Never heard of it. The predator is almost 50 feet long. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Sounds terrifying. I'm just picturing a ginormous crocodile. Let's see what else is cool about North Dakota. It is home to three of America's coldest cities. Okay. Not visiting those. Yes. Except Uh, maybe in the weather that we're having right now. That's fair. That's fair. Eden, if you want to avoid those cities, don't ever go with anyone to Grand Forks, Bismarck, or Fargo. They are rated number two, three, and four on America's coldest city list. Damn. And I kind of wanted to go to Fargo just because. Uh, That's okay. Apparently, the summer there is kind of extreme. So you can get some crazy high temperatures in the summertime in North Dakota. The town of Steele, North Dakota, actually recorded a temperature of 121 degrees back in 1936. No one wants that either. No one wants that either. I agree. I Although agree. I was crazy enough the one time to go walking, like for exercise in 112 degree weather. And and how far did you make it before you had to crawl back on your hands and knees? I actually did a few miles. I brought like a frozen water bottle, but then the ice wasn't melting um, as fast as I would like it to. <laughs> so I'm just like, it melted a drop. I can have that drop. Sustenance. <laughs> like I won't dehydrate into a dry, dry husk of a man. And then this weird guy started following me. So I just got in my car real quick and just locked the doors and drove away. That was the beginning of a true crime episode. You know that, right? Yeah. (laughs) I think I narrowly avoided something. (laughs) And since we are a road trip show, I feel like it only is fitting that we mention the Enchanted Highway. So... Roads in North Dakota are notoriously long and it's very empty there and you'll just drive for miles and miles and miles and all you'll see is grass and farmland. So to break up that tedium, on the way to the town of Regent, which is in the south of the state, a retired school teacher and principal named Gary Greff had this really cool idea. He decided, let's put some huge scrap metal sculptures every few miles to break up the landscape a little bit. So since 1991, he has been constructing these sculptures out of recycled metal and planted them along the highway. It's become known as the Enchanted Highway. There's at least seven sculptures there now. In 2001, the Guinness Book of World Records acknowledged one of these sculptures, the Geese in Flight sculpture that was erected in 2001, as the largest metal sculpture in the world. Wow. Yeah. Geese in Flight is made out of oil well pipes and oil tanks. It is 156 feet long, 100 feet tall, and weighs an estimated 75 tons. Greff's goal is to build 11 sculptures total, but right now he's been focused on building a hotel out of a disused schoolhouse in Regent, and it's in the shape of a castle, and it'll be called the Enchanted Castle. That sounds pretty cool. I don't yeah. know. This seems neat. I would like to go down that Enchanted Highway and see what's up. I bet it's in like, I, you know how every state has like a weird book, like we have weird Pennsylvania and there's weird mm-hmm. New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I bet it's probably in weird North Dakota. Probably. Probably. I feel like it absolutely is probably, to me, sounds like one of the kings of the... American Roadside Attraction. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my fun facts for North Dakota. I liked it. They were fun facts. Yeah. I feel fun and factual. Good, good. That's my goal. All right. Well, is anybody up for some murder? I mean, is it a day that ends in a Y? <laughs> well, in that case, I will start. 
So you think that I wouldn't get stumped on where to go with my story this early in the game, right? I mean, it's my intro. (laughs) I should be able to easily pinpoint where a story takes place, but that was not the case for this week's story. I looked through so many articles, and yes, compiling this story this week was difficult, both because I've been sick and because it's crazy and there's so much going on. But all these articles were giving me different places in North Dakota and even included uh, the city of Spokane, Washington which made me double check that I was even in the right state. Yeah, that's a little off. Um, Yeah, I mean, I understand the Spokane connection now that I did the story. Okay, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to learn about the Spokane Spokane connection. (laughs) Sorry. So anyway, that's all right. This story takes place around uh, Minot, North Dakota. The internet told me to pronounce it Minot, so that's what we're going with, and I'm sorry if it's not right. It's the county seat of Ward County and is in the north central portion of North Dakota. It's known as the Magic City because it had a huge population boom in a short amount of time of about 100,000 people all moving to the surrounding area. Wow. It's a big trade hub for the state and also for parts of Canada as well. It's also the fourth largest city in North Dakota. If you are Scandinavian, like probably most of the area that we're talking about, you might want to learn about your heritage in Minot, which is home to the Scandinavian Heritage Association or the Scandinavian Heritage Park, which has replicas of all things Scandinavian and from every Scandinavian country. So imagine like Epcot, but instead you can only go to Sweden, Norway, Finland, Iceland, and so on. I'm kind of okay with that, truthfully. Yeah, I mean, the best part of Epcot for me was always going to, um, wait, which Scandinavian country did they have there? Was it Norway? Norway. I think it's Norway. Yeah, because I loved that ride that now is apparently a frozen ride. So guess what? Not doing it anymore. But, (laughs) you know. But yes, I would like to go to this place, the Scandinavian Heritage Park, because maybe Bjork's there. I don't know. So if you want to see some animals... You can check out the Roosevelt Park Zoo, or you can get your learning on at the Dakota Territory Air Museum. Either way, you're going to have a lot of fun in Minot. So why not go to Minot? Wait, that's the best slogan for a town I've heard in a while. (laughs) I know, and I just thought of it right now, and I cringed a little while saying it, but still. So you may even strike it rich when going here with what I assume led to the population boom. Tons and tons of oil. That's right. This place struck black gold. And that is what will have a little to do with my story today, or a lot. The story of James Henriksen. Okay. A little black gold, a little bit of there will be blood action here. Okay. I'm here for it. There's a lot of there will be blood action. Basically, a lot of articles called it there will be blood in North Dakota. <laughs> so, yeah. So James Henriksen first moved to North Dakota from Texas with his then-girlfriend, Sarah Kreveling, in 2011. The two had been together for about a year, and he was trying to get in on the oil rush that I spoke of in my intro. About four months into being there, he called a friend named Christopher K.C. Clark, telling him, hey, so there's this oil rush... People are making a lot of money and striking oil. you got to get down here and be a part of this. And Casey also decides to move to town. Okay. So he hires Casey on with his own company that he established, which he'd taken out loans for from a lot of people. It was a trucking company called Blackstone. Blackstone was a trucking company which supplied water to these oil rigs for things like fracking. So for those that don't know what fracking is, it's where you pump liquid at high pressure into the ground to extract oil and things like that. So this is obviously hard work, and Casey was, frankly, sick of it. He liked the money, but wanted to do a little less work from what I gathered, so he decided that it would be a good idea to maybe cut his friend James out of all this and start his own company and perhaps take some of the people that Blackstone had with him. Mm, okay. But we're going to... underhanded. Yeah, maybe not the best choice. So we're going to be putting that aside for the moment because James, being the wonderful boss he was, decided his friend Casey was indeed working too hard. And to show his appreciation for this, he decided to give Casey two weeks of paid vacation. 
Wow. Yeah. He was like, hey, buddy, I'm just going to give you this little break. All I need from you before you leave is the company credit card, and then it's Bon Voyage. Well, Casey's vacation was so great that it seemed to everyone that he wanted to stay on it permanently because this was the last anyone had ever seen Casey. Uh-oh. He went into the office, dropped off the credit card, and disappeared off the face of the earth. No one saw him leave, even. Hmm. Very suspicious. Yeah. He was reported missing, but the police didn't really see it as top priority because the workers in the oil fields were constantly up and leaving, since it was good work where the money was concerned, but it was also backbreaking labor. Also, he said he was going on vacation, so who knows? The fact remained, though, that all his stuff was still in his apartment and he was just not answering his phone, but police kind of put it on the back burner and weren't real worried about it. Until a few months later, when Casey's car was found some 80 miles from where he was last seen on the side of the road and he was still nowhere to be found. Huh. Okay. Even more suspicious. Yes, but the police still aren't really digging all that much. So honestly, like, I don't know if the police really looked into James for this or not. They did question him, but I don't know how serious they were about him. Yeah. I haven't seen, like, police reports, so I don't know how heavily they vetted him at the time. But I'm really thinking they didn't because they didn't seem to care about Casey's disappearance. And if they had looked at James's record, they would have seen that it was a mile long. Not only was his record long, but it was all over the map, both geologically and by range of offenses. He had been in jail for armed robbery, assault, sexual assault, drugs, and just about anything else you can think of. Hmm. But he never seemed to stay for very long. I mean, I honestly think that he got away with a lot because of his looks. Mm. Like, if you look at his younger pictures, not so much his more recent pictures, but his younger ones. He's kind of got like this almost like Matt Damon thing going on. Okay. So he's, you know, a pretty attractive guy. And as we all know, pretty people get away with a lot of shit or a lot more shit than average people do. His criminal activity does not end with just his long ass rap sheet and whatever he may or may not have done with KC, because now I want to tell you about some of his other business partners at Blackstone, a.k.a. the people who loaned him the money for all this. Yeah, because you said he took out a bunch of loans to get his business off the ground. Oh, yeah. So he has partnered with, like, everybody and a lot of very important people in the oil business, too. So we're going to start with Steve Kelly. Steve was a Native American man and part of the MHA Nation, or Mandan Hidasta Arikara Nation. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing any of that right, but there we go. So I'm only going to say MHA from now on. And that was the tribe whose land all this oil drilling was going on on. Okay. So who better to partner with than someone who has a say in a lot of what's happening because due to tribal status, he partially owned the land. Yeah, it makes sense. That would be somebody you definitely want to have as a business contact slash partner. Oh, yeah. So Steve's fronted money went to supplying Blackstone with trucks. I believe that Steve also had his own trucking business, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, my next line here is Steve had his own business. (laughs) Uh, And he was also bidding on jobs where the oil fields were concerned. And you'd think since this is tribal land and Steve is Native American, that that would put him ahead of James for bids on these jobs. But James had a plan to get these jobs before Steve could. He had a Native American friend who didn't even live in North Dakota But since she gave him money to start the business, that meant his company was also Native-owned, meaning it would cancel out that little factor when trying to get these bids. Ooh, that's tricky. Yeah, very, very underhanded and sneaky. So after a bit of this nonsense, Steve Kelly had had enough. He lodged a formal complaint because this was all obviously bullshit, and then Kelly got the bids that were rightfully his. And James was super butthurt over all this. All of a sudden, there was this mysterious anti-Steve Kelly graffiti that began popping up everywhere in town. 
The two that I saw from the video, which was a huge help for me this week, were the side of a truck where it said, fuck Steve Kelly. It was written across the side. And another that said, Steve Kelly raped my wife. Wow. Very, that's aggressive. Yeah. And very eloquent indeed, James. Oops. I mean, mystery person writing the graffiti. Totally not James person not, who is graffitiing. Yeah, not at all. Why would he do such a thing? So that's when James and Steve officially fell out with each other, and James moved on to Bigger Fish, still in the same tribe. So in December of 2011 now, James decides to partner with a guy who also owned his own trucking company and was the chairman of the MHA Nation, Tex Hall. Okay, so pretty pretty big with these on like the tribal council. Oh, yeah. And I'm also really wondering why both of these Native American men have the whitest names that I've ever heard. But that's a mystery for another time. I mean, assimilation works in weird ways. I guess so. Because, yeah, Steve Kelly and Tex Hall, I don't immediately think Native American men. So James and Tex were actually really great business partners for a while. The trucking for Blackstone was being done out of one of Tex's garages. Since before this, the trucks all came from Steve Kelly. And we know that's done with now. The two were really good friends and would even go on vacations together. Like, they were close. Wow. Yeah, that's like buds, right? Like, vacation oh, buds. Yeah. Like, I'm sure they went hunting and a lot, you know, bro stuff. Exactly. They're, they had a major bromance going on. I hate that word, but I'm going to say it. Now, this, of course, didn't last because not only was James, good old James, embezzling probably, like, you know, close to a million dollars. Uh, I don't really have an exact figure uh, from the jobs that he was receiving since he'd make look like there was more work being done than was actually happening, uh, not to mention setting up tons of shell companies in his girlfriend's name. But the kicker was when he got Tex's stepdaughter pregnant. So there's that. Ooh, whoopsie. Yeah. he got. It wasn't the fact that he was embezzling, which, you know, of course, sucked wasn't the fact that he was setting up all these shell companies in his girlfriend's name to make even more money and embezzle more stuff. But then the real kicker was got Texas stepdaughter knocked up. So now he's kind of family too. Yes. Although the kind that you don't talk to, the black sheep. Mm-hmm. That all went to shit. And now James decides to switch things up a bit. He says, I don't want to just do the trucking for the frackers. I want to get in on the real action, the drilling. Okay. So around 2012 is where he meets and partners with a man named Doug Carlisle, who is from Spokane. So there's a Spokane connection. They met through a mutual friend named Tim Scott and decided to work together because this brand new area of land that hadn't been drilled yet came up for bid. Weird thing here, and I don't know if he ever actually was doing this or not, but he told Doug Carlisle, that he had been building roads for the Winter Olympics in Russia. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually something he did, or he could have just pulled it completely out of his ass, but I'm betting on the latter. Uh, that smells a little bit like poop. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, like, what a weird lie to tell, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been building roads in Russia for the Winter Olympics. I totally know how to build roads. I built them in Russia. Exactly. Weirdo. I mean, duh, duh. So they go into business together, developing this company called Bridgewater Energy. And I don't know why Doug agreed to this, but the money was split 75-25 with James getting the controlling share. Hmm. Seems fair. Anyway. Yeah, maybe it has to do with the initial investment or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming. It just seems weird. So all they needed was to do this was to secure... Uh, about $2 million, and it was theirs. Okay. So Doug... Okay, that's... Yeah. All they need is $2 million. <laughs> all they need is just a measly $2 million. They'll be fine. Uh, Let me check my sock drawer. Yes. So Doug starts making some deals while James puts down 600000 of his own money, which, I mean, Owen, I'm using in, you know, quotes, because uh, it was probably embezzled because James. So things, however, were not panning out and they couldn't come up with all the money in time i guess james blamed doug for this because he actually tried to buy him out of the company but doug refused so if you remember 
KC on his, let's just call it a permanent vacation as far as anyone else knows, you can see how people who don't do business the way James wants them to do it end up. And on December 15th, 2013, Doug and his wife, Alberta, are coming home from church. Alberta goes upstairs and does whatever. But when she comes back down, she finds a masked man holding a gun to Doug's face. Doug was shot seven times, and his wife runs, hides, and calls 911. So now, the police may have been able to ignore a disappearance, but surely not a murder, which is what is quite obviously this was. And it's not like they could be like, oh, it was a robbery gone wrong, because nothing was taken. Mm -hmm. The police search the scene, and they do find a footprint outside that did not match Doug or his wife. They also found a single glove that did not belong to either of them. And I know, I know, one glove. We now know the killer must have been Michael Jackson. But spoiler alert, (laughs) it wasn't. So talking to witnesses, they said they did see a van, but nothing else. They did get a pretty good assessment of character here about James from Doug's wife. She told police that Doug was actually afraid of James and that he's even strangled Doug on a business trip once. Oh, my God. Yeah. The kids also told the police that their father said, if I disappear or wake up with bullets in my back, promise me you will let everyone know that James Henriksen did it. Wow. So that's kind of, yeah, like a reigning declaration of, you know, this is the person who did it. Yeah. So we've seen the kind of thing before in stories, and it always gives me chills Whenever someone's like, you know, if something happened to me, it wasn't an accident. It was probably this person. Yeah. Yeah. That's very dark. Oh, yeah. So they decide to contact James. And of course, he's like, oh, he's dead. Well, that's weird. Guess these things happen. Yeah. So there's James for you. But remember that James is in North Dakota and Doug was murdered all the way in Spokane, Washington, where he lived. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So they do pull CCTV footage, which shows the masked man walking around as well as the van, but that's it. They did eventually run DNA on the glove they found at the scene, and it was a match for someone in the system. Now I'm going to pause here because I don't know if we ever really discussed this, but collecting DNA and running it through the database, the way it works is that the database only has the DNA profile of people who have been arrested and they gave a DNA sample, whether willingly or through a court order. But anyone who has been arrested for a less serious crime probably won't be giving DNA. And if you've never been arrested, chances are your DNA is not in the system and they won't find you when looking for it. Okay. So that's why police have to get DNA samples from suspects and persons of interest. DNA is useless if you have nothing to compare it to. But they definitely got lucky here, and this man's DNA was already in the system. So this guy's name that they found in the system, his name was Tim Succo or Suko. And as I just stated, he had been arrested and given DNA previously since they were able to match him in the system. But when they look at his arrest record, it's just as long as James's. Hmm. Lots of offenses, lots of arrests. He's this Big, bald guy who has that muscly body, but still with like a good layer of fat over top. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Kind of like barrel chested, I guess you would say. Uh, He's covered in tattoo. There is one across his stomach that says East Coast. Uh, He has some sort of tribal designs that look like on his arms and a scorpion on his chest. And then an inverted pentagram on the other pack opposite the scorpion. He just looks like what we imagine a career criminal to look like. Yeah, yeah, accurate. So they looked into his background and found out that he was currently working for an asbestos removal company. And guess what kind of vehicle they drove there? That's right. Nondescript white vans, just like the one that everyone said they saw. You always think it's the nondescript white vans. And it and this time it actually is. <laughs> yes, exactly. So he was quite obviously arrested for Doug's murder. And they searched his house and cars, including the work van. When they did search, they found a ton of firearms. but. Missing from this massive collection was the gun used to kill Doug Carlisle. When searching the car, 
They found his phone, the black mask worn during the shooting, a pair of binoculars, and this list, which from what I could make out from the picture said, glove, question mark, badge, trench coat, two boots, LED light cap, rig, window tinker, something I couldn't make out, and then wheelman and Google wingman, check van for scheduling, and some other things that I just could not make out. So it's either his to-do list or it's like his list of expenses to submit later. <laughs> like, what it's, the hell? Yeah, like, because the glove question mark is like, where did that glove go? And then the badge, trench coat, two boots, things he needs. And then I think it's funny because it's just like, Google wingman. <laughs> Very weird. So the most damning thing on this list that there was on his phone was a phone number. And with it, a name. And that name was James from ND. Mm-hmm. Who do we think that might be? I wonder. So they have Tim in custody now. And at first he wasn't talking. He would just not cooperate at all. But once he realized that he was absolutely never getting away with this, that's when he began to be a little more forthcoming. They struck a deal and he sang like a canary. Mm-hmm. He said when he traveled initially from Spokane to Williston, North Dakota, He was under the impression that James Henriksen wanted him to, quote, beat someone up, which, you know, probably not true. They go to an Arby's because North Dakota, I guess. And also beef and cheddars are delicious and will help you get in the mood to beat someone up, supposedly. (laughs) Yeah, supposedly beat someone up. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I like I like Arby's chicken sandwiches. I don't care for the roast beef sandwiches. I just don't. Everyone knows that it's about the Jamocha shakes and those curly fries. Oh, the Jamocha shakes are really good, and they used to have a chocolate turnover that was really good, but I don't think they make it anymore. All right, so screw the beef and cheddars. We're going to get two Jamocha shakes, a couple of curly fries, and then we're going to see about, quote, beating someone up. Exactly. Okay, that's our order. (laughs) Can I get two shakes, uh, some fries, and someone to beat up? Thanks. (laughs) So, yeah, they go to the Arby's because, you know... It's North Dakota, and that's what people do in North Dakota. They love their Arby's. And James just lays out there, like, lays it all out there and asks him to kill not KC, not Doug, but Stephen Kelly. What? He still has, like, a hard-on for Steve Kelly? Yes. But, like, that's a, that should be ancient history by now. Oh, James is the type to hold a grudge, let me tell you. So... Tim then spends the night in a cabin, which was being paid for by James. Don't really know what happened to the kill Steve Kelly idea because Tim then admits to bludgeoning KC to death with a metal pipe and driving with James and another guy by the name of George Dennis to a state park and burying KC's body there because James found out about KC's little business plans. Mm. After that, he goes back to Spokane $10,000 richer or $20,000, depending on the source. This was toward the end of February. But then in March, he's contacted by James again to come back to North Dakota. James wanted him to move there, according to one of my sources, but he declined. I guess James wanted him to be like on retainer as his hitman. I don't know if you can do that or not. I guess so. But then I believe they are called like cleaners instead, usually. And, you know, I could be wrong. But I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I feel like you can charge a retainer for anything. That's probably true. So I guess James is also selling drugs on the side. And if you're surprised at this point, then you really just haven't been listening. But (laughs) James also tried to bring Tim in on that enterprise as well. It was mostly heroin from what I could find. And it was taking place in the oil fields. Okay. Just selling heroin to the workers, I guess. I don't really know if this was his in his confession, in Tim's confession or not, uh, when it comes to the Doug Carlisle's murder. But I do know that there was an email exchanged about killing Doug. Okay. And the reason for killing Doug seems to be twofold. He, of course, wanted him out of the company, which is obvious. But Doug found out about a lot of James's dealings and how he was screwing everyone he worked with out of money and was going to take the information to the FBI. Yikes. Yeah, that's a pretty huge target slash motive. Oh, hell yeah. And uh, Tim also did admit to throwing the murder weapon into the river. 
Anyway, with this information, the police get a warrant to search James's house, and they also find a shit ton of guns there. Now, just like with Tim, since James was a convicted felon, he's not allowed to own firearms, and they arrest him for that at the very least. So they knew he was going to run, so that's why they did it. That's what all that was about. Something to keep him there just because they also found out that he and Tex Hall's stepdaughter, the one he knocked up, were planning on leaving the country together. Yeah. Yeah. So much for his girlfriend, I guess. I know. I'm like, doesn't he have that girlfriend, that long-suffering girlfriend? Oh, yes. I think she might be his wife by this point, too. Yikes. So they also found out about this hit list that James had, which is not at all surprising, yet again. These names on the hit list had prices next to the name, so I guess it was like what he was willing to pay to have these people killed. Mm-hmm. Among the names were Steve Kelly. Of course. Tex Hall. And also his wife, because I believe they were married at this point, like I said, Sarah Kreveling. Ugh. Sarah was involved in all the embezzlement and the shell companies because if you remember, her name was on the companies. Makes you wonder if he just like married her because of that aspect where you can't necessarily testify against, against your, spouse. your spouse. Yeah, maybe. So he wanted her gone because she was a loose end that needed tying up. She knew too much. Mm-hmm. And he was going to leave her, I guess, for this, you know, stepdaughter. So Tim Suko ended up spending 30 years in prison for two counts of murder for hire, which I think is not enough because this was far from the first strike. And we've got a double murder here. Seriously, justice system. But it was a plea deal. So maybe that's that. Okay. Some damn fine lawyering. Exactly. So Sarah ended up getting three years probation for her role in the embezzling and shell companies and also had to pay restitution in the amount of $340,000. James initially said that he was going to plead guilty and take a deal. But once that was all going into motion, he said, you know what? I don't think so. No deal. He was probably betting on the fact that since there was no body for KC and no murder weapon for either murder, that he'd be fine in a trial. He did try to flee custody before trial by making a rope out of bed sheets in his cell, but he was obviously, you know, failed with that and was recaptured. I can't believe he failed with the classic Looney Tunes bedsheet. I know. Trick. <laughs> probably named his bed Rapunzel so she could let down her fair hair, but. <laughs> uh, so James, you know, the jig is up. Let's just be cool now and not try Looney Tunes shit. So. He was charged and convicted on 10 counts of conspiracy to commit murder and was given two life sentences. They still haven't found Casey's body, even with the help from Tim Suko. But I've seen it before where murderers, they just kind of, they want to leave prison for a little bit. So when they're out searching for these bodies with the killer, they buy them lunch and stuff. So it's just like a fun day out for them. So they might want to try to milk it for all it's worth. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Anyway, that's the uh, the very long and twisted story of James Henriksen. What did you think, Nicole? I mean, it's very on point with the whole there will be blood. Like somebody who's just going to do what they want to do to make as much money as they possible and they don't care who they hurt. Yeah. Uh, and also the murder. Yeah. He's Lots seems, of murder. Definitely seems like like a at least a sociopath, if not a psychopath. Yeah. I feel like you very easily drop someone like James Hendrickson into like North Dakota of like the 1880s and he would probably do just fine uh, as like a badass outlaw gang leader who just did whatever the hell he wanted. Yeah, he has no moral compass whatsoever. Mm -mm. So my sources for this week were a YouTube video called The Sinister Case of James Hendrickson which was done by this Irish guy whose name I did not catch in the video, but he did a very good job telling this confusing story. Uh, Spokesman.com for a lot of articles. Like, I think I had like four or five different articles from them. Wikipedia for my intro. Monstersandcritics.com. And unheralded.fish, which opens up a new mystery of what the hell is a .fish website. But that too is a mystery for another time, I guess. (laughs) 
because okay again listeners if you would like to write in if you know what the hell a dot fish website is please tell us yeah i've never heard of that very weird but that was my my crazy story that took me forever and i was just like dying at the time so i was like i can barely think i need to get this done though and why is it so long it's interesting but god help me well on that note i guess we should take a quick break and when we come back i will have the news and nicole will have her story and we're back guys i hope you missed us i missed you yeah we all missed you very very much and I have a news story that you're not going to want to miss. All right. Let's hear the news. All right. This one comes from Newsweek. And the title is Teen Adopts Bumblebee After It Follows Her Home. Pair Forms Unlikely Bond. (laughs) Okay. I've heard of like dogs and cats being adopted after you follow after they follow a kid home, but never a bumblebee. But yeah, a bumblebee. It's very strange. And it actually reminds me of something that happened to me. Like I'm allergic to bees. I don't like bees. Um, I've been stung several times and yeah, bad, bad stuff happened where I swelled up a whole bunch. Um, but there was one day where I was walking from the side yard to the backyard to get back in the house at my parents' house. And there's like the very tiny walkway to get from the side to the back. Cause there's this mm-hmm. giant bush that's there. And I came straight into the path of a bumblebee. And you know, when you like, or walking down like a hallway or something, you run into someone, you both sort of dodge the same way to get around each other a bunch of times. That's mm-hmm. what me and the bumblebee did. So I actually kind of liked that bumblebee. I formed an unlikely bond with that bumblebee as well. It's quite the meat cute, Eden. Yes, I know. I laughed my ass off about it after it happened because like that was just like a person. That was weird. Mm-mm. And I guess that's what this girl thought too. So let's find out. A 13-year-old teenager in Coventry, England, made an unexpected friend earlier this month. Lacey Schillinglaw spotted a bee as she was walking one day and, trying to keep it safe from the dangers of the road, tried to move it to a wall or flower. However, as Coventry Live reports, the bumblebee buzzed back to Schillingjaw each time. Eventually, Shillingjaw needed to go home, and the bee, climbing over all the teen's face and clothing, ew, came along. Since that day in early August, the pair have been inseparable. Bees are known for being highly intelligent insects. In fact, as PBS reported in 2017, they are so smart that they're able to learn behaviors that lead to rewards, along the lines of how a dog might learn to sit so that it can get a treat. That's interesting. super interesting. Yeah. The insects also communicate with one another using a mix of headbutting, jostling each other, and dancing. Even more remarkable is the fact that, like humans, bees are equipped with cross-modal sensory transfer, which, in simple terms, means that bees are likely able to picture mental images in their minds, much like we do, reported Smithsonian Magazine. Bees also have the capacity to understand basic math, including adding, subtracting, and the concept of zero itself. How do they know this? Yeah, how, how do they know that? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know how bees do math. Um, okay. So they can also reportedly recognize faces and experience something akin to emotions. According to Coventry Live, Shillinglaw and her mom, Lara, have taken the bumblebee, now named Betty, out on excursions, like bowling. What? I don't think that's bee appropriate. No. How's the bee going to bowl? It really is. Such... <laughs> I feel like you've lost it with the story. You're like bowling. I don't understand <laughs> this. I mean, I wanted weird and I got it. Um, yes, you did. Yes, you did. It really is such an amazing thing to see. Lacey has no fear at all of any animals apart from spiders. Laura told news, the news outlet. She added the bee just seems so happy with Lacey. They have struck up quite the friendship. It's such a beautiful thing to watch. And I cannot see an end to Lacey and Betty B's friendship at any time soon. Shillinglaw also takes Betty for frequent trips outdoors, giving the insect a chance to pollinate some flowers and get some fresh air. However, whenever Shillinglaw goes back inside, Betty follows closely behind. At night, Betty even sleeps beside Shillinglaw in a non-lidded container filled with dirt, grass, water, and flowers. As unusual as pet bumblebee may sound, 
Schilling Law is not the first person to have adopted one. In 2018, Fiona Presley of Scotland found a wingless queen bee in her garden. The two bonded and shared five months of companionship before the bee passed away in Presley's hands. And that depressingness is the end of the article. Well, I mean, I hate to break it to our 13-year-old fearless animal lover, but most bees only usually have a lifespan of about two months. Yeah, insects don't live a whole lot longer. You got a YOLO, girl. YOLO. For instance, like a a housefly, I think, lives for like two to four days. Mm -hmm, Basically, mm -hmm. all they do is they're born, they mate, and then they die. And also annoy the shit out of you. The circle of life. The beautiful, beautiful circle of life. <laughs> well, that was definitely a weird story, Ian. Thank you. Yeah, you're very Thank welcome. You for the weird news. I weirded myself out. So there we go. <laughs> that one's a winner. So I guess I will move on to my paras- paranormal story, which I also hope is a winner. So today we are going to head to Harvey, which is in central North Dakota. The city's website proudly advised me that Harvey is not just a place, but it's an experience. So let's experience it together, shall we? Holy shit. Okay. Not just a place. It's an experience. Please tell me how this place that I've never heard of is an experience. Let's go. (laughs) Let's dive in. (laughs) So the city of Harvey was founded in 1893 near the headwaters of the Cheyenne River. And originally, it was founded to be an interchange stop for the Soline Railroad and was named after the railroad's director at the time, one Colonel Scott William Harvey. I think Minot had a lot to do with railroads at first, too, or was at least like a stop on a railroad because it was a trading hub, like I said. But I get so confused with all the train stuff, and we're just running into so much of it that I left it out of the intro. <laughs> yeah, plus we're at the point in the country where there were a lot of like shorter rail lines yeah. where it would kind of run between two large towns, and it's very hard to track and understand. I definitely – I've been down that rabbit hole trying to figure out where one train company started and another one ended, and it's very confusing. Exactly. I'm not – what's-her-face who – oh, Dagny Taggart, that's her name – Dagny Taggart from Atlas Shrugged. I don't understand trains. <laughs> well, she barely did. <laughs> anyway, the city of Harvey today is about two square miles, and it is home to 1,800 residents. The city describes itself as, quote, a progressive community with country appeal. Those who live in Harvey experience a great educational system, recreational opportunities for all ages, high-quality medical services, excellent city services, a low crime rate, and a first-rate retirement community with weather for all seasons, end quote. All right. They really sold themselves to me, if you can't tell or not. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, they brought a lot to the table. They put a lot on the table, so they better bring it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, the experience of Harvey is that you're surrounded by rolling plains and lots of farmland because it's North Dakota, but you're also nestled in the natural beauty of the Cheyenne River. Which, okay, rivers are awesome. Mm-hmm, I agree. There's a lot of outdoor recreation around Harvey, mostly due to its close proximity to the Lone Tree Wildlife Management Area. The Lone Tree Wildlife Management Area is a 33,000 acre wildlife habitat that is managed by the North Dakota Game and Fish Department. It includes the headwaters of the Cheyenne, and it skirts around the Missouri Conto, which is this large plateau that stretches along the eastern side of the valley of the Missouri River into central North Dakota and uh, north central South Dakota. People in the wildlife management area who visit can hunt and they can fish there, If that's what they're into, they can hike along a 32-mile section of the North Country National Scenic Trail, which is actually one of the largest and longest scenic trails in the country. It runs from North Dakota to Vermont, and it covers over 4,600 miles. So I was fascinated by this, and I realized, oh, you could really hike from Vermont to to North Dakota if you wanted to, just like Lewis and Clark. If you really hated yourself, you could do that. If you're up for a challenge. (laughs) If you need to take off of work for like a year, I don't think it's worth it. If you need a leave of absence. (laughs) Yeah, because that's going to be a long-ass hike. Yes, yes, it will. 
If you're not that outdoorsy, don't worry. You can occupy yourself with some different experiences in Harvey. You could go for a dip in the Harvey Swimming Pool. It's open seven days a week with a $5 daily, daily admission. Or you can take in a film at the Harvey Central Cinema, which has been bringing the magic of Hollywood and air conditioning to the city for over 50 years. Ooh, air conditioning. That's why movies are so great in the summertime, right? Absolutely. Or if you're just in the mood for a good book, you can head over to our stop for the day, the Harvey Public Library. Ooh, okay. Haunted Library. I like it. Yeah. I bet there's a lot of ghosts that say, shh. <laughs> Look, I, I can't even. That, that was the, That's the best joke I've heard all day. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing for that other than a giggle. <laughs> Located on 10th Street in downtown Harvey, the Harvey Public Library is a single-story building, pretty simply designed, but it offers space for a collection of over 22,000 volumes of books, DVDs, CDs, and audiobooks. So it's something for everyone. It also hosts a summer reading program, as well as providing other services like photocopying, printing, faxing, Wi-Fi access, the standard fare at most public libraries. While all of this sounds like your typical small city library, what really drew my attention, aside from their special collection of North Dakota Living Magazine, I am living for it, North Dakota, were the reports of some very odd occurrences that happen at the library, especially after dark. Now, over the years, library staff have reported the mysterious disappearance and reappearance of books, keys, and other objects left in the building overnight. They also experience flickering lights, and this has been happening ever since the building was constructed in 1990. Hmm. It's so frequent that they've actually called out multiple electricians over the years to try to diagnose and fix the problem, considering it was a relatively new building. But over the past 30 some odd years, they haven't been able to correct the issue. So to this day, there's still flickering lights at the library. So that's weird because like, I expect this place to be a lot older. Well, I'll get into a little bit more about the history in one second, but the interesting thing to me is that not only do you have this flickering, but other people who have visited the library, your patrons, uh, also the librarians themselves, have reported this feeling of a presence in the library. Like, no matter what, you're never really alone there. And it's not just that book that's a good friend. Oh. There's something else. There's something in the stacks, Eden. Oh, no. <laughs> No, I know you mentioned this library is pretty new. It's actually in, in, in downtown Harvey, and there used to be a house there, and it was knocked down over the course uh, in the 19, 1970s as it became dilapidated. And the lot sat vacant for a while until they decided to build a library on that land. A lot of the folks say the presence they experience in the library is probably the woman who used to live in that very house where the library now stands. It was a lady who lived there, raised a family there, and unfortunately died there. Huh. Her name was Sophia Eberlin. Now, Sophia was born in Russia to German parents in 1889. She emigrated with her family to the United States, and eventually she ended up marrying an older man named Hugo, who was a successful businessman in Harvey. The Harveys moved into their house on 10th Street where they proceeded to raise two daughters, Lillian and Alice, before Hugo died in 1928. Hugo left Sophia pretty comfortable. The inheritance of his estate was about $75,000 back in 1928, which is closer to $1.1 million today if you adjust for inflation. Wow. Yeah, so she is now the wealthy widow, widow Eberlein. Very nice. And she never gains weight, apparently, with that last name. <laughs> Very true. However, she was only a widow, a wealthy widow for a short time. It seems that um, pretty soon after Hugo's passing, a local plumber named Jacob Bentz started to ardently pursue Sophia, who admittedly was only about 39 years old when she was widowed and now incredibly wealthy for the small town of Harvey. She saw his butt crack one time and just had to have him. <laughs> well, it was interesting because a lot of my sources were like, he kind of pursued her and she was sort of a little hesitant to marry him. But eventually, uh, Jacob was able to win her over. They had a lot in common. They were both Russian immigrants who had recently lost their beloved spouses. 
And they're both parents. I mean, that's stuff you can talk about on, on dates, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, they're practically the same person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like Sophia, Jacob, who had six children, um, most of his children were grown. He only really was still raising his his youngest son, Wilbur, who was 13 when, when he was courting Sophia. Now, eventually, when she agrees to marry him, they get married very quickly. They move into the house on 10th Street that Sophia had previously shared with her first husband. And they settle into married life. However, a lot of neighbors often heard the couple's couple fighting since their house in the middle of town. And reportedly the marriage wasn't very happy, happy from the start. Oh, no. So you see, since Sophia had all this money, she was a smart gal. She arranged for a prenuptial agreement for the inheritance money because in her mind, it was her first husband's money. It also should eventually pass to her, her daughters. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I have no problem with prenups. They sound like a great idea to me. Agreed. Sophia has Jacob sign a prenuptial agreement before they get married. And this leads them to a lot of arguments over money because he has no stake or control over her money. And if she were to pass away, he wouldn't really inherit anything. All of it would go to her two daughters. By 1931... They were also regularly arguing about Jacob's frequent nighttime visits to Fezenden, which is a nearby town of about 500 people. It's unclear from the historic record why he was going there at night and why he was going there so frequently. There was speculation that maybe he had a lover. He was seeing another woman, perhaps. Uh, There was also speculation that maybe he was involved in gambling because there was said to be an illegal speakeasy in casino. Ooh. Yep. So a lot of people thought maybe he was out on the town in small little Fezenden. Uh, I can't really say what it was. There wasn't any clear indication in, in the historical records. But all of this fighting did eventually come to a head on October 2nd, 1931. According to the initial reports, Jacob and Sophia were returning to Harvey from a business trip. They had started arguing. Sophia, who was driving, lost control of the car It careened off the road and crashed into a ditch. Oh, no. While Jacob was unscathed by the crash, Sophia was unfortunately pinned behind the steering wheel. And then the car caught fire. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the chances of that happening are actually very, very low. Aren't they? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Jacob said he tried to get her free from the car, but unfortunately was not able to do so before he was overcome with smoke and had to sit there while he watched his wife burn to death. So the police are called. They come out. They investigate the scene of the accident. Meanwhile, Jacob is holding Sophia's funeral and also contacting the insurance company to see about collecting Sophia's $500 accidental death insurance policy. that's quick. That is very quick. So after Sophia's funeral, her grown daughters, Alice and Lillian, go to their mother's house on 10th Street, the house they grew up in. I thought you weren't doing true crime this week. <laughs> I didn't think I was either, but then I come across this library and I was like, huh, interesting. Wow, okay. okay, yeah. So while the girls are at their mom's house, they're, you know, maybe they're looking for keepsakes or family heirlooms like you do when, when a loved one passes on. And they go into their mother's bedroom and they notice something truly horrifying. There seem to be blood splatters and stains on the wall and floor of their mother's bedroom. Aha. They had already been pretty suspicious. And this is definitely their aha moment. Oh, yeah. So they immediately call the Harvey police. Turns out the Harvey police were also starting to get a little suspicious of Jacob. When they further investigated the car accident, they realized that it definitely looked like the car hadn't burst into flames, but... There were distinct spots where it looks like somebody had actually poured an accelerant and then set it on fire. Now that whole car thing is making a lot more sense, which is what I figured as soon as you said calling the insurance company right away. Mm-hmm. So based off of this suspicion, the police arrest Jacob and start a proper investigation. Well, they really didn't have to work too hard because within two days of questioning, Jacob confesses and tells the real story of Sophia's death. Oh my God. Didn't take him along. Mm-mm. Like when you, I found some really great newspaper articles about this death. Cause I was like, is there really this ghost in this library? Yes. 
And there is an article dated like October 3rd, 1931, and then an article talking about his confession dated October 6th, 1931. So it was like damn, definitely either some really good police work or this guy was awful, awfully impressionable and just, you know. Kim Rico Award. Kim Rico Award. Yep, yep. We're handing him out like candy now. Oh, Eden, just wait. He is a viable – I would say he's an honorable mention. Okay, good. Okay. It's 1 a.m., October 2nd. The couple's fighting because Jacob wants to go on a trip to Pheasanton again. After the argument, where clearly he lost, he goes to bed with a claw hammer. A little while later, Sophia gets ready to retire to bed. He attacks her and bludgeons her with the hammer. Then he picks up the telephone and calls an insurance agent that he knows in Pheasanton. What so the as fuck? Yeah. So as Sophia is either dead or dying in the bedroom, he decides to purchase a $5,000 accidental death life insurance policy for Sophia. Oh. And just to make it less suspicious, one for himself as well. What? No, that's still, <laughs> still, no. <laughs> then he's like, well, that's done. And in the early morning hours of October 2nd, he loads Sophia into the car and drives about eight miles south of Harvey. Jesus, if you could see the expression on my face right now. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Yep. Wow. He drives it to a part where he knows there's a, a big V-shaped ditch along the side of the road that drops about 10 feet from the road surface. Because, I mean, he's been driving this road a lot because he's doing something in Pheasanton. So he drives the car, pushes it into the ditch, and then sets it on fire. My God. Uh, after his confession, Jacob Bentz pleads guilty to first-degree murder. He's sentenced to life in prison. He dies in the North Dakota State Penitentiary in 1944. And the land that the house is, the house is basically sold to another owner and then kind of abandoned and eventually torn down. Fast forward to the 1980s. They decide, yep, we're going to build a library in this vacant lot downtown. And then, don't you know, on the 59th anniversary of Sophia's funeral, the Harvey Public Library opens its doors to its first patrons. The library itself does cover the original footprint of Sophia's house, plus more. And interestingly enough, the main office is located on the same spot where Sophia's bedroom was, and that seems to be a real focal point of activity. Well, I wonder why. I wonder why indeed, right? Your husband's killing you and calling the fucking insurance company at the same time. I don't. Yeah. Okay, fine. Just go because I can't. I can't speak now. Do you want ghosts? Because that's how you get ghosts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting because a lot of folks um, say that Sophia isn't the ghost of Sophia and her presence. It's not really malicious. She's much more of a prankster spirit. She does things like move books from shelves and reorders them. She is really known for hiding keys and sometimes bags when it's time to head out for the day. Uh, according to one of the librarians, uh, a woman named Marlene Ripplinger, quote, we have issues when we're ready to go home and suddenly the keys are not there. You backtrack. You look and you look. Finally, you just say, okay, Sophia, I need to go home now. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there are the keys. You just thank the Lord and you take off, end quote. That's great. <laughs> so um, some of the other manifestations that people have experienced with Sophia um, have been uh, cold, cold, cold spots. Uh, that's something that's very well known at, at the library. There will be random cold spots throughout the library. In the main office, uh, there's actually been someone who reported that, you know, they asked Sophia to touch them if she was really there or to make her presence known. And they reported feeling like a chill touch along their arms and back, almost like cold air being brushed across their skin and, and neck. Um, and that's something that Sophia will do when you ask if she's present and she's there, which I think is pretty freaking terrifying in, in the wrong circumstances. But, oh, yeah. Uh, the other thing that they attribute to Sophia is the electrical problems at the library. So the blinking of lights off and on, um, never quite being able to figure out what's wrong with the lights. A lot of the staff at the library think it's just Sophia pranking people again and just flicking the lights off and on because she's bored and she can. Yeah, and she needs to have some fun. Yeah. Uh, one of the librarians said, basically, when something is awry at the library, we usually attribute it to Sophia because that seems to be 
the spirit that is most prevalent in the library or perhaps the only spirit. So Eden, would you like to go to the library card from the Harvey public library? I would love to go here. That sounds fun. I looked at pictures while you were telling your story too. Yeah. It's just like, it looks like any other small town library, nothing crazy fancy. I even saw some lovely pictures of the librarians that work there as well. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it sounds really interesting. Like the story behind it was incredible. I really liked that. I mean, I hate that that happened to her, but it was an interesting story. Yeah, I think it's it's really cool. That's why this one stuck out because one, it's a haunted library, which is like very cool and unique. Oh, yeah. And then two, I feel like a lot of times when we're researching like a haunted location, like you get the story, but you can't really find out like, so this person was murdered here. And it's like really hard to find out like who this person was and and like what actually happened. And I was just so delighted to actually find out like, yeah, I can look at the Bismarck Tribune and there's articles about what happened to her and validate it beyond just some person was killed here trust me wink wink you know exactly yeah but yeah that's my story i liked it uh my sources were harveynd.com recreation.gov a murderpedia article about jacob bentz uh, a wikipedia article about sophia eberlein the bismarck on the cheap.com article about the most haunted places in North Dakota, the Grand Fork Herald.com, which had a lovely article about the workers at the library and their experiences with Sophie. And then also hauntedrooms.com and two articles from the Bismarck Tribune from 1931. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that was our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to get in touch with us you can do that by emailing us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com you can also stop by facebook or instagram or twitter and send us a dm or tweet at us or however you'd like to shout out on the social media platform you're choosing on instagram and facebook we are roadside horror show on twitter we are roadside horror you can also visit our website which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com If you have a moment, feel free to like and review us. Uh, It always helps spread the word or heck, even just tell a friend who you know likes true crime and uh, paranormal podcasts so we can spread the creepy love. And we'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassy for our intro and outro music. So until next time, guys, creep creep on, on, creep creep on. on.